Well, good morning, church. Morning. It is good to gather to worship and to dig into the word together. I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 24, as we continue our study of this letter. First John chapter 2, starting at verse 24. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that today uh, you would allow words to jump off the page into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives, that we would become more like you. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you take advantage of the thesaurus feature on your word processing programs, right? Anybody use the thesaurus feature when you're writing an email or a letter, uh, writing an essay or a, a memo at work? Isn't this a great feature, right? You know, you're writing a, a paper about how much you like dogs, and the thesaurus allows you to write a paragraph without using the words dog or like over and over again. Right? Thanks to the thesaurus, you can say, I'm incredibly enthusiastic about canines, or I thoroughly enjoy puppies, or there's nothing I value more highly than time with my pooch. You can essentially say the same thing over and over again without reusing the same word, not to mention how sophisticated it can make you sound as you expand your vocabulary by thousands of words. It is unquestionably... No, indubitably, no, no, irrefutably, scratch that, incontrovertibly, a great grammatical tool. Now, it's evident in this passage that we just read that the writers of the book of 1 John had no such access to a thesaurus function on the papyrus they were writing on. You see, in this short passage we just read, the same word was repeated four times in just four verses. And if we were to have continued, we would have read it, read it even more. Did anyone notice what that word was that was repeated over and over? Remain. Remain. Or if you're reading the ESV or uh, KJV, the, the word is translated as abide. Abide. Remain. In fact, while this word is not used all that much in the New Testament, the Johannine community uses it nearly 60 times in their writings. 40 times we read this word in the Gospel of John, 17 times in this short letter of 1 John, and another two times in the one-chapter letter of 2 John. This is sort of a buzzword within the Johannine community. So I guess it may not have been just a lack of a first century thesaurus. It actually looks like this word was intentionally repeated for a reason. 
And while this discourse could have uh, maybe been a little more interesting if the writer cycled through replacement words like stay, endure, persist, continue, keep on, it was this word, remain, and this word only that was intentionally chosen to communicate the message that was intended. So the question we're left with is why, right? What is it about this particular word remain that is so important to be communicated? Why repeat remain when there are so many other words that could have worked just fine? Well, the short answer to this is that the word was used to trigger a memory or to trigger a concept that the readers already knew, a concept that would ring a bell immediately for them and would draw their thoughts to another text that they already knew. Uh, Verse 24 says, let what you have heard from the beginning remain in you. Now, this is a bit of a play on words. The concept of remaining is what they had heard from the beginning. And simply to hear it stated again would remind the readers of what they had been taught theologically from the earliest days of this Christian community. One of the things that I love about the letters of John is that they almost always mirror their gospel, right? As we know, uh, it is this same community that produced the gospel of John. And what we notice when we read the letters is that they appeal to the teachings found in the gospel of John. Sometimes uh, something that is mentioned briefly in these letters, an idea or concept, is only mentioned briefly because it's assumed that the audience already knew the contents of the Gospel of John and would know what this passing comment was referring to. Or words and phrases like this one are intentionally inserted directly from the Gospel into these letters with the knowledge that the readers would connect the dots to the corresponding passage in the gospel that the letter is referring to. And in this particular case, for the members of John's community, the word remain, which was almost exclusive to their teachings, would immediately remind them of the teaching found in John chapter 15, or the parable of the vine and the branches. So why don't you turn there with me to John chapter 15, so that we too can connect what the letter is saying to the theological truth that it is referring to. Now, here's the thing. We actually don't have time to get through all of this today. So consider this part one of two, dealing with the concept of remaining. And we're going to pick up next week where we leave off today. But for now, we start at John 15 starting at verse one. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, though, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. 
Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Okay, so you can see why the readers of 1 John would connect these dots, right? The same word, remain, comes out of Jesus' mouth 11 times in the 10 verses that we just read. And so the first thing we can say about our text in 1 John is that the letter is intentionally pointing to the truth that Jesus taught in John 15. So upon hearing this concept of remain, a vine and branches would have come to mind for its original readers, right? The reason the word was chosen was to bring to mind a picture, an image that they already knew. And so when we read this text as well, when we hear this word, a vine and branches should come to our minds as well. Okay, so we're given imagery, right? We have a picture in our minds for this word. Uh, But what we're still lacking is a definition, right? Or a description of what it means for a vine and branches to remain as such. So that will be our goal for today, to answer the question, what exactly does it mean to remain? And then next week, uh, we'll move on to answer the question, why do we remain? Which I believe 1 John addresses extremely well. So the why is next week, but today we look at the what. What is this word remain talking about? How do we remain as John 15 and 1 John so emphatically call us to? There's no doubt that this is an imperative. Listen again. 1 John 2, 24, remain in the Son and in the Father. Verse 27, remain in him. Verse 28, remain in him. John 15, 4, remain in me. Verse 4, remain in me. Verse 5, remain in me. Verse 6, remain in me. Verse 7, remain in me. Verse 9, remain in my love. Verse 10, remain in my love. Turn to the person beside you and say, I think John is trying to tell us something. Right? There's no arguing that, that remain is what we're invited to do. So we're going to look a little deeper into the parable of the vine and the branches, which outlines just what this looks like and, and just what the Johannine community would have remembered as they were reminded of the call they had heard from the beginning. Now, just a quick word before we let the text define remaining for us. It's important to notice that the parable starts by explaining the characters within the parable. Right? There's sort of a cast list posted, and we are told precisely who plays which role in this analogy. Right? Verse 1 says, I am the true vine. Right? This is Jesus speaking. So Jesus is the vine. It continues, and my father is the gardener. Okay, so God the Father plays the role of the gardener. Now, if we travel down to verse 5, we find our role. You are the branches, right? Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and so we, those who follow Christ, are the branches. So that is our role to play, right? Now, the reason it's so important to start off this way is to both establish what we're expected to do, 
but also what we're not expected to do. You see, I think often we can handcuff ourselves in our Christian walk because, because we feel like we need to do everything, right? That it's my responsibility to play the role of gardener or to conjure up my own strength for growth and fruitfulness, convincing myself that I need to be the vine. And we miss the fact that in this story, in this parable, while we do have a role to play, we are certainly not the main characters. We're actually extras in this narrative. And we can trust that the stars of the show will be the stars, that God will be God. And all we need to do is faithfully play the role of a branch that we have been entrusted with, which leads us to begin answering the question, how do I play the role of a branch? Or how can I be someone who remains in him? So we're going to walk through a list of what I think the text describes for us as the characteristics of remaining in Christ. And as any time we have a list, it's not exhaustive. You might think of another one, uh, and that's okay. But I think this gets us thinking in the right direction. So the first characteristic of remaining in Christ is believing in him. Believing in him. You see... I need to believe that Jesus is the vine in order to play the role of the branch and remain in the vine, right? If I don't buy this, if I don't believe Jesus' assertion that he is the vine, that life comes through him, that fruit flows through him, I cannot abide in this truth, right? I cannot remain attached to that which I do not believe, At the very beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1, 12 says this, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The qualifier here, right? The qualifier for receiving Jesus, for being God's children is believing in Jesus, believing in his name, believing that he is who he says he is, that he is the Christ, that he is the life, which is what we've already seen our letter get at several times, right? Christology is of utmost importance and is essential to remaining. Last week, we read that, that, that the ones who did not remain the ones who left the family of God, the Antichrists, as they were called, did so on the premise that Jesus was not the Christ. He was not the vine. And so in order to remain, to stay connected to Christ and to his body, the church, it begins with believing in his name and believing it consistently. As Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, It is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Right? So proper belief is the first step to remaining in Christ. Next, we see uh, John 15 say that remaining in Christ involves cherishing his word. Right? It involves cherishing his word, believing in him and cherishing his word. I actually borrowed this heading from pastor and theologian John Piper. Uh, the idea that we are not simply called to listen to the word, but to cherish the word of God. Ask yourself that question. Would I define my relationship with the word of God as a cherishing? Do I cherish the word of God? 
right? The word of God is all over these passages. In verse three, Jesus says, you are already clean because of what the words I have spoken to you. In verse seven, Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. In verse 10, Jesus says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. In 1 John 2, 24, where we started today, let what you have heard, my words, from the beginning remain in you. The word of God is central to what is being described here. And in order to remain in Christ, we need to be people who value his word, who trust it and its truth, who give authority to it in our lives and who enact what it says. In short, we need to be people who cherish the words of the Lord. I, I feel like I harp on this point almost every week, right? But I don't apologize for it. We need to be in the word. We need to read the scriptures. Church, we cannot remain in Christ if we do not know who Christ is. We cannot remain in Christ if we do not know what Christ wants, if we don't let him speak, or if we don't follow where his word leads us. Right? Branches are attached to the vine. They are where the vine is. They reside there. They're not just simply familiar with the vine or admire the vine from a distance. Right? Those who remain are those who seek out the words of God and who live and breathe them as the very words of Christ, seeking to know, honor, trust, and live out the words of God. To remain in Christ is to cherish his words. The next characteristic of remaining in Christ is pursuing relationship with him. Pursuing relationship with him. Those who remain in Christ pursue God. They pursue Christ. Now, this one is, is intimately connected with the previous one, right? Like when we go to the word, what we're doing is pursuing a deeper relationship, right? Reading the words of God is not simply about knowing about God. It's about knowing God. 19th century theologian J.C. Ryle said this, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with him to always be leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, and using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. Wow. Maybe I should have just read that quote at the beginning and we all could have been done and gone home early. In all seriousness, though, look at his first words here. Let's read that first sentence again. To abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant, close communion with him. To always be leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him and using him as our foundation of life and strength as our chief companion and best friend. And this echoes John 15 superbly. Look at verse four, 
remain in me as I also remain in you, right? When we remain in Christ, he remains in us. So to remain is not simply a one-way street. This is a relationship that, that we pursue that we would walk with and talk with Jesus, that our pursuit wouldn't be a a weekly Sunday morning thing. It wouldn't even be a daily thing. It would be an all times thing, that we would seek his presence at all times, That, that, that as we read from Ryle, that he would be our chief companion throughout our lives, right? That we pursue relationship with him. Another way, according to our passage, that we remain in Christ is by placing our hope in him, right? Placing our hope in him. Look at the last part of verse five. It says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's humbling a little bit, isn't it? Apart from me, you can do nothing, Nothing of eternal significance will ever be done apart from that which you do because you are in Christ. Let me say that again so that it settles in. Nothing of eternal significance will ever be done apart from that which you do because you are in Christ. Right? We cannot be good. We cannot save ourselves We cannot solve the world's problems. The only hope that we have and that our world has is Christ. And when I put my hope in humanity, in in nationalism or in good works or social movements, I cease to be connected to that which is the only hope, to that which I have been called to remain and remain fixed upon. As Psalm 33, 20 to 21 says, we wait in hope For the Lord, he is our help and our shield. In him, our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. Right? There's so much that the world, uh, there's so much in the world that tries to steal our hope. Right? There's so much in the world that tries to steal our hope. But Christ is the only hope. Church, a cure or a vaccine for a virus is not what we put our hope in. The results of an election, domestic or international, is not what we put our hope in. An economic upswing, social reform, political change are not what we put our hope in. We are called to remain in Christ, to put our hope in him. And when we do that, and only when we do that, will we see fruit that is worthwhile and lasting. What is a branch that's disconnected from the vine? It's a stick, right? It's not even a branch anymore. It's only defined a branch based on its attachment to the vine. And it certainly has no ability to produce fruit as a stick. Those who abide place their hope in Christ and in Christ alone, knowing that apart from the vine, there is no hope because there's no fruit when we're disconnected from the vine. Moving along. Unfortunately, for our comfort's sake, 
The next characteristic we see of the call to remain is allowing ourselves to be refined by him. Being refined by him. Look at me with verse, look at me, look with me at verse two. He, the gardener, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So here's a question. According to this passage, according to this verse, who gets cut? To, to whom is this passage painful? Everyone, right? Every branch. Those who are not of God are cut off. And those who remain, who are fruitful, are pruned. They are cut back. They're focused so that they can produce more fruit. So, so a part of being attached to the vine is being pruned, right? The gardener prunes the fruitful branches. It doesn't say he might prune the branches. Pruning is what a good gardener does, and to remain, to stay attached to the vine is to allow the gardener in his wisdom to do what he needs to do to prune us, to refine us, to make us more fruitful. The New Testament writers knew this. First Peter 1, 6-7 says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. James 1, 2-4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. Keep being pruned. Let it happen that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Right, friends, the Christian way is not the easy way or the comfortable way. Trials and struggles are an intended part of the journey. Let me say that again because we don't like this. Trials and struggles are an intended part of the journey for our own sanctification and for God's glory as we become more fruitful and as we're pruned by the good gardener. And this is so important, church, because so often we, we seek to define God's goodness based on how little we suffer, right? Think about that. Or how little this world hurts us or how easy our lives are. And we connect words like blessing and favor with comfort, ease, health, and abundance. But that's not what we read here. That's not what James says. That's not what Peter says. It's not what Jesus says when he tells us that the gardener prunes us intentionally. Some of our trials... And I do say some because there are others. Some of our trials are the result of sin, ours or others, and are not from God. But some of the trials that we think prove God's lack of care for us are actually proof that he does care for us and that he is working in our midst for our own good. 
Right now, I'm not sure about you, but one of the ways that I show love to my kids, whether they know it or not, is by helping them grow, helping them become better. And that often includes pruning, saying no to them, disciplining them, correcting them, redirecting them. And this isn't a sign of my absence or my indifference. It's a sign of my love. Show me someone who has never been told no, never felt pain, never been disciplined or encouraged towards growth, and I'll show you someone who has not been loved. May we not confuse our comfort with God's love or our ease with his blessing. May we be people who are open to remaining connected to Christ even when remaining hurts. God loves us enough to work on us, to not let us stay where we are, but to help us become more like Christ. Remaining involves opening ourselves up to the refining process. The sixth characteristic of remaining in Christ is living for his glory. Living for his glory. Look at verse eight. This is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples, right? This, all of this that I'm talking about is to my father's glory. The fruitfulness we've just been reading about is to my father's glory. So to remain in him is to give ourselves over to his purposes, to produce fruit, not for our own sakes, but for the sake of Christ, that God would be glorified. Right? And, and this is often where we struggle in the day-to-day. -day. When, when it comes down to who it is that we're living for, right? Am I living for me, asking Jesus to help me live the life that I want to live? Or am I living my life for the glory of God, that his will would be done and that he would receive the praise? Romans 14.8 says, For if we live, we live to the Lord. This is kind of like a, a Christian manifesto. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are his. We are the Lord's. Friends, it's not about us. As 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever it is you're doing, right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Those who remain, those who are attached to the vine, know that, that the glory does not go to the branch, right? When you see a nice fruit, you don't praise the branch. And they know that their goal is to aim praise, to point in the direction of the gardener that he would receive the glory. And the final characteristic of Remaining in Christ uh, that we're looking at today as evidenced by our text is being empowered by him. Those who remain in Christ are empowered by him. Now there's a lot of talk in this passage about fruitfulness and what happens to the branches that do not bear fruit. Verse two says he cuts off every branch that does not bear fruit. 
Now, historically, people, uh, many people have used this passage to scare Christians into right living, right? Saying God will cut you off. God will throw you in the fire and burn those who don't produce fruit, right? You better try hard and produce fruit or you'll be cut off. This can be a scary passage and it has been used in this way that you'd better be fruitful or else. But that's the wrong way of looking at this passage because that implies that it's up to us to produce the fruit in the first place, right? Thinking, hey, if I don't produce fruit, I'll be cut off. But let's think about that for a second. Can a branch actually produce fruit? No. We know that because a branch that's disconnected from the vine or a tree is nothing more than a useless stick. The passage itself tells us this. Verse 4 says, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. That's, that's basic uh, agriculture. So to say that unless you, unless the branch does something, in this case produces fruit, it's useless, is to expect the impossible, right? It's the vine that produces the fruit through the branches. The vine is the source of power. I want you to think about a flashlight for a second, right? The fruit that a flashlight produces is light. But... But the flashlight itself, while it has the mechanism to produce light, cannot produce light on its own aside from its power source, right? So if I take the batteries out of a flashlight, the flashlight is useless. It cannot produce light aside from its connection to the power source. And it's the same with us. Church, we do not produce fruit, apart from that which is produced in us, empowered by the vine, empowered by Christ. We are but an instrument that the power of the vine flows through. So back to this scary idea that if we don't produce fruit, we'll be cut off. That would be like saying that the flashlight must be able to produce light without the batteries before the batteries will enter in and power the flashlight. Right? It doesn't make any sense. It's impossible, and it negates the need for batteries in the first place. A branch cannot produce fruit apart from the vine. And so our fruitfulness on our own is not a recipe for staying. Fruitfulness is not our ticket to remain. No, it's the opposite. Remaining is the ticket for fruitfulness. This passage, rather than a threat, is in fact an encouragement to believers that being attached to the vine, Christ will result in fruitful lives, right? If we let God fill us, we can be the people he's called us to be, not because we make it happen, but because God does it in and through us. This passage doesn't threaten Christ's leaving us. It rather affirms his staying Verse four, remain in me as I also remain in you. Right? This passage is a promise that God makes to us about his presence and his desire to power all of our pursuits. Church, we do not need to grit our teeth and earn our right to be a branch. 
We do not need to grit our teeth and earn our right to be a branch. By God's grace, you, Jesus says in verse 5, are a branch. And the promise to the branches attached to the true vine is that if we will remain, if we will link our lives to the lives of Christ, if we will stay in communion with him, that by the power of Christ and the skilled pruning of the Father, we will produce fruit. So we're left again with the invitation simply to remain, to believe in him, to cherish his word, to pursue relationship with him, to place our hope in him, to be refined by him, to live for his glory and to be empowered by him. Now I kind of gave it away with the red text on the slide, but did you hear the common denominator? Him. Jesus Christ is the vine. We are but the branches. And if we remain focused on him, connected to him, his life, his power remains in us. And when he is in us, we will bear much fruit to the glory of God the Father. And that is a promise. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to be people who remain in you. God, I pray that you would help us to see what it looks like in our lives, what it looks like for each one of us individually to remain in you, to keep our eyes fixed on you and to attach our lives to your life, letting you be the one who fuels us. God, help us to put skin on this, that we don't just talk about this generally or philosophically or theologically, but we would know what it looks like for us today to remain in you. God, I pray that all of the other things we're tempted to attach ourselves to, or maybe even the tendency that, uh, to do things on our own without an attachment, Lord, that you would push those things from our minds and that you would call us to yourself that we would come to you and that we would stay, that we would remain, that we would abide. We pray these things in the name of the one to whom we attach ourselves, Jesus Christ, amen.